0: Here's a few more readings uh, from the suttas, directly or tangentially uh, related to uh, the six sense bases, uh, but uh, maybe uh, from a slightly uh, different angle. Um, although, it's, you know, at some point the teachings all come together in the same place, but um, uh, examining the six sense bases. Uh, uh, with the idea of uh, eliminating the craving aspect that keeps us caught in the samsara, um, there's also uh, the ignorance, craving and ignorance being the two kind of overall global qualities that keep us bound in samsara. So, um, you know, all these teachings really aim at both um, reducing craving and also uh, establishing insight uh, into the nature of uh, our... Uh, reality. So a little bit more on the latter today. Um, So the first sutta that I'll read uh, is from the Sanyutta, Nikaya, book two, number 26, Rohitasa. Familiar one to many, I think. At Sawati, standing to one side, the young deva Rohitasa said to the blessed one, Is it possible, venerable sir, by traveling to know or see, to reach the end of the world where one is not born, does not age, does not die, does not pass away, and is not reborn? As to that end of the world, friend, where one is not born, does not age, does not die, does not pass away, and is not reborn, I say that it cannot be known, seen, or reached by traveling. It is wonderful, venerable sir. It is amazing, venerable sir, how well this was stated by the blessed one. As to that end of the world, friend, I say that it cannot be known, seen, or reached by traveling. Let me turn to a footnote here. Uh, Rohitasa posed his question about the end of the world with reference to the stellar world space, but the blessed one answered with reference to the world of formation, sankara, often uh, the world being referred to as uh, the world of our sense bases, sense experience. Once in the past, venerable sir, I was a seer named Rohitasa, son of Bhoja, possessed of spiritual power, able to travel through the sky. My speed was such, venerable sir, that I could move just as swiftly as a firm bowed archer trained, skillful, practiced, experienced, could easily shoot past the shadow of a Palmyra tree with a light arrow. My stride was such, Venerable Sir, that it seemed to reach from the Eastern Ocean to the Western Ocean. Then, Venerable Sir, the wish arose in me, I will reach the end of the world by traveling. Possessing such speed and such a stride and having a lifespan of a 100 years, living for a 100 years, I traveled for a hundred years without pausing except to drink, eat, take meals and snacks to defecate and urinate, to sleep and dispel fatigue. Yet I died along the way without having reached the end of the world. It is wonderful, Venerable Sir. It is amazing, Venerable Sir, how well this was stated by the Blessed One." As to that end of the world, friend, where one is not born, does not age, does not die, does not pass away, and is not reborn, I say that it cannot be known, seen, or reached by traveling. However, friend, I say that without having reached the end of the world, there is no making an end of suffering. It is, friend, in just this fathom-high carcass, endowed with perception and mind, that I make known the world the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. And then in verse, the world's end can never be reached by means of traveling through the world. Yet without reaching the world's end, there is no release from suffering. Therefore, truly, the world knower, the wise one, gone to the world's end, fulfiller of the holy life, having known the world's end, at peace, longs not for this world or another. So the Buddha pointing out the way to the end of the world, the one end of our suffering, is through, is found in this fathom, fathom long body. Then uh, also in the Sanyutinakaya, uh, 35, 116, called Going to the End of the World. So he picks up the same verse. Bhikkhus, I say that the end of the world cannot be known, seen, or reached by traveling. Yet, Bhikkhus, I also say that without reaching the end of the world, there is no making an end to suffering. Having said this, the Blessed One rose from his seat and entered his dwelling. Then, soon after the Blessed One had left, the Bhikkhus considered, Now, friends, the Blessed One has risen from his seat and entered his dwelling after reciting a synopsis in brief without expounding, expounding the meaning in detail. Now who will expound in detail the meaning of the synopsis from the Blessed One recited in brief? Then they considered, The Venerable Ananda is praised by the teacher and esteemed by his wise brothers in the holy life. The Venerable Ananda is capable of expounding in detail the meaning of this synopsis recited in brief by the Blessed One without expounding the meaning in detail let us approach him and ask him the meaning of this then those bhikkhus approached the venerable ananda and exchanged greetings with him after which they sat down to one side and told him what had taken place adding let the venerable ananda expound it to us friends it is as though a man needing heartwood seeking heartwood wandering in search of heartwood would pass over the root and trunk of a great tree standing possessed of heartwood, thinking that heartwood should be sought among the branches and foliage. And so it is with you, venerable ones, when you were face to face with the teacher, you passed by the blessed one, thinking that I should be asked about the meaning. For, friends, knowing, the blessed one knows, seeing, he sees. He has become vision, he has become knowledge, he has become the Dhamma. He has become the Holy One. He is the expounder, the proclaimer, the elucidator of meaning, the giver of the deathless, the lord of the Dhamma, the Tathagata. That was the time when you should have asked the Blessed One the meaning as he explained it to you, so you should have remembered it. Surely, friend Ananda, knowing the Blessed One knows, seeing he sees, etc., etc. Uh, basically, they're saying, yeah, we should have asked him, but we didn't. Um, Let the Venerable Ananda expound it without finding it troublesome. Then listen, friends, and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, friend, the bhikkhus replied. The Venerable Ananda said this. Friends, when the Blessed One rose from his seat and entered his dwelling after reciting a synopsis in brief without expanding the meaning in detail, bhikkhus, I say that the end of the world cannot be known, seen, or reached by traveling, Yet, bhikkhus, I also say that without reaching the end of the world, there is no making an end to suffering. I understand the detailed meaning of this synopsis as follows. That in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world. This is called the world in the Noble One's Disciple. And what, friends, is that in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world? The eye is that in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world. The ear, the nose, the tongue, the body. The mind is that in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world. That in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world, this is called the world in the Noble One's Discipline. Friends, when the Blessed One rose from his seat and entered his dwelling after reciting a synopsis in brief without expanding the meaning in detail, uh, this is how uh, I remember it. As the Blessed One explains it to you, so you should remember it. Yes, friends, those bhikkhus replied, and having risen from their seats, they went to the Blessed One. After paying homage to him, they sat down to one side and told the Blessed One all that had taken place after he had left, adding, then, Venerable Sir, we approached the Venerable Ananda and asked him about the meaning. The Venerable Ananda expounded the meaning to us in these ways, with these terms, with these phrases. Ananda is wise, bhikkhus. Ananda has great wisdom. If you had asked me the meaning of this, I would have explained it to you in the same way <clears throat> that it has been explained by Ananda. Such is the meaning of this, and so you should remember it. So I thought that was quite. Uh, pertinent, uh, just in defining the the world as we talk about it. The world, in this case, um, uh, is that by which, in the world, one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world. The, in, that, in other words, the <coughs> six sense bases, so that we have the basic raw input uh, coming in through all the six sense bases: the, the the sight, sounds, tastes, um, smells, tactile sensations, and uh, thoughts. Uh, and that's that's just what it is. Those are just the phenomena that appear through the sense bases. But then, um, normally, what we do is we have a perception of it, um, a category that we define it as, a label, uh, a word, often uh, to label it, uh, and a, um, it's the it's the beginning of the f- uh, process of identification, objectification where we make it into something based on our past experience, based on our perceptual world. So that's the perceiving. And then further on, um, we start to conce- conceive around it uh, to establish opinions and views and proliferations, uh, uh, judgments, strategies. Uh, and then that moves into the world of, of further objectification, further consolidation into uh, a Uh, a conceived reality uh, taking it even further from the uh, actual uh, experience. So that's what we do um, with the data that comes in through our sense basis. We complicate it. We make it very complicated, all driven by greed, hatred, and delusion. Okay, so moving on for a couple more readings, um, a couple more sutta readings in the uh, Udana, again, uh, six sense bases as the um, reference point. And this one is Udana, uh, chapter one, number 10, Bahia. Many of you are also familiar with that one, I'm sure. Thus have I heard, at one time the Lord was staying near Sawati in the Jeta wood at Anadapindika's monastery. At that time, Bahia of the bark cloth was living by the seashore at Suparaka. He was respected, revered, honored, venerated, and given homage, and was one who obtained the requisites of robes, alms food, lodgings, and medicine. Just uh, to start with, he, w- he was not a monk uh, in the Buddha's dispensation, uh, he was a uh, wanderer ascetic. Now, while he was in seclusion, this reflection arose in the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth. Am I one of those in the world who are Arahants or who have entered the path to Arahantship? Then a Devata, who was a former blood relation of Bahia of the bark cloth, understood that reflection in his mind. Being compassionate and wishing to benefit him, he approached Bahia and said, You, Bahia, are neither an arahant nor have you entered the path to arahantship. You do not follow that practice whereby you could be an arahant or enter the path to arahantship. Then in the world, including the devas, who are arahants or have entered the path to arahantship? There is Bahia in a far country, a town called Sawati. There the Lord now lives, who is the arahant, the fully enlightened one. That Lord, Bahiya, is indeed an Arahant, and he teaches Dhamma for the realization of Arahantship. Then, Bahiya of the Barkcloth, profoundly stirred by the words of that Devata, then and there departed from Suparaka. Stopping only for one night everywhere along the way, he went to Sawati, where the Lord was staying in the Jeta wood at Anadapindaka's monastery. At that time, a number of bhikkhus were walking up and down in the open air, Then Bahia of the bark cloth approached those bhikkhus and said, where, revered revered sirs, is the Lord now living, the Arahant, the fully enlightened one? We wish to see that Lord, who is the Arahant, the fully enlightened one. The Lord, Bahia, has gone for alms round among the houses. Then Bahia hurriedly left the Jeta wood. Entering Sawati, he saw the Lord walking for alms food in Sawati, pleasing, lovely to see, with calmed senses and tranquil mind, attained to perfect poise and calm, controlled, a perfected one, watchful with restrained senses. On seeing the Lord, he approached, fell down with his head at the Lord's feet and said, teach me Dhamma, Lord, teach me Dhamma, Sugata, so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. Upon being spoken to thus, the Lord said to Bahia of the bark cloth, it is an unsuitable time, Bahiya. We have entered among the houses for alms food. A second time, Bahiya said to the Lord, It is difficult to know for certain revered sir how long the Lord will live or how long I will live. Teach me Dhamma, Lord, teach me Dhamma, Sugata, so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. A second time, the Lord said to Bahiya, It is an unsuitable time, Bahiya. We have entered the hou- among the houses for alms food. A third time, Bahia said to the Lord, It is difficult to know for certain, etc. Teach me Dhamma Sugata so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. Here in Bahia, you should train yourself thus In the seen will be merely what is seen, in the heard will be merely what is heard, in the sensed will be merely what is sensed, in the cognized, will be merely what is cognized. In this way, you should train yourself, bahia. When bahia for you in the seen is merely what is seen, in the cognized is merely what is cognized, then bahia you will not be with that. When bahia you are not with that, then bahia you will not be in that. When bahia you are not in that, then bahia you will be neither here nor beyond, or in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. Now, through this brief Dhamma teaching of the Lord, the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth was immediately freed from the taints without grasping. Then the Lord, having instructed Bahia with this brief instruction, went away. Not long after the Lord's departure, a cow with a young calf attacked Bahia of the bark cloth and killed him. When the Lord, having walked for alms food and sawati, was returning from the alms round with a number of bhikkhus on departing from the town, he saw that bahia of the bark cloth had died. Seeing this, he said to the bhikkhus, take bahia's body, put it on a litter, carry it away and burn it, and make a stupa for it. Your companion in the holy life has died." Very well, revered, sir, The Buddha, those bhikkhus replied to the Lord. Taking Bahia's body, they put it upon a litter, carried it away and burnt it, and made a stupa for it. Then they went to the Lord, prostrated themselves, and sat down to one side. Sitting there, those bhikkhus said to the Lord, Bahia's body has been burnt, revered sir, and a stupa has been made for it. What is his destiny? What is his future birth? Bhikkhus... Bahia of the bark cloth was a wise man. He, pra- he practiced according to Dhamma and did not trouble me by disputing about Dhamma. Bhikkhu's Bahia of the bark cloth has attained final nibbana. Then, on realizing its significance, the Lord uttered on that occasion this inspired utterance Where neither water nor yet earth, nor fire nor air gain a foothold, There gleam no stars, no sun sheds light. There shines no moon, yet there no darkness reigns. When a sage, a Brahman, has come to know this for himself through his own wisdom, then he is freed from form and formless, freed from pleasure and from pain. This inspired utterance was spoken by the Lord also, so I did hear. So Bahia realized full enlightenment with uh, just a very short, brief teaching on seeing the sense basis, uh, seeing the experience with the sense basis just in their own uh, purity without perceiving, conceiving.
1: That teaching, it's also worth <laughs> noting that it's uh, one of the few cases where an unordained person becomes an arhat. Right,
0: right, uh, right, right. Yep. He was obviously primed and ready <laughs> from his past, uh, his past uh, searchings, his past longings. OK, and then another, um, another short sutta from the Udana, number, uh, chapter 3, number 10, called Examining the World. Thus have I heard at one time the Lord was staying at Uruvela beside the river Niranjara, at the foot of the Bodhi tree having just realized full enlightenment, is what we now know as bokaya. At that time, the Lord sat cross-legged for seven days, experiencing the bliss of liberation. Then at the end of those seven days, the Lord emerged from that concentration and examined the world with the Buddha eye. While examining the world with the Buddha eye, the Lord saw beings tormented by various torments and consumed by various feverish longings born of passion, hate, and delusion. Then, on realizing its significance, the Lord uttered on that occasion this inspired utterance. This world is subject to torment. Afflicted by contact, it calls a disease self. For however it is conceived, it is ever otherwise than that." One of Lumpaw's favorite phrases to quote. For however it is conceived, it is ever otherwise than that. Becoming something other, the world is held by being. It is afflicted by being, yet delights in being. But what it delights in brings fear, and what it fears is suffering. Now this holy life is lived in order to abandon being. Whatever recluses and Brahmins have said that freedom from being comes about through some kind of being, none of them, I say, are freed from being. And whatever recluses and Brahmins have said that escape from being comes about through non-being, none of them, I say, have escaped from being. This suffering arises dependent upon clinging. With the ending of all grasping, no suffering is produced. Look at the people in the world afflicted by ignorance, come into being delighting in being not freed. Whatever forms of being exist in any way, anywhere, all these forms of being are impermanent, subject to suffering, of a nature to change. On seeing this as it actually is with perfect wisdom, the craving for being is abandoned. Yet one does not delight in non-being, Nibbana is total dispassion and cessation, attained with the complete destruction of cravings. A bhikkhu whose cravings are extinguished by not grasping has no renewal of being. Mara is vanquished. The battle is won. The stable one has passed beyond all forms of being. Okay, and I'll just uh, end the readings with a fairly short uh, talk from Ajahn Chah, just a a couple minute talk. Uh, This is a talk from the Collected Teachings, volume 2, number 22, page 261, called called Just This Much. Do you know where it will end? Or will you just keep on studying like this? Or is there an end to it? That's okay, but it's external study, not internal study. For internal study, you have to study these eyes, these ears, this nose, this tongue, this body, and this mind. This is the real study. The study of books is just external study. It's really hard to get it finished. When the eye sees form, what sort of things happen? When ear, nose, and tongue experience sounds, smells, and tastes, what takes place? When the body and mind come into contact with touches and mental states, what reactions take place? Are greed, aversion, and delusion still there? Do we get lost in forms, sounds, smells, tastes, textures, and moods? This is the internal study. It has a point of completion. If we study but don't practice, we won't get any results. It's like a man who raises cows. In the morning, he takes the cow out to pasture. In the evening, he brings it back to its pen. But he never drinks the cow's milk. Study is all right, but don't let it be like this. You should raise the cow and drink its milk, too. You must study and practice as well to get the best results. Here, I'll explain it further. It's like a man who raises chickens but doesn't collect the eggs. All he gets is the chicken dung. This is what I tell the people who raise chickens back home. Watch out, you don't become like that. This means we study the scriptures, but we don't know how to let go of defilements. We don't know how to push greed, aversion, and delusion from our mind. Study without practice, without this giving up, brings no results. This is why I compare it to someone who raises chickens but doesn't collect the eggs. He just collects the dung. It's the same thing. Because of this, the Buddha wanted us to study the scriptures and then to give up evil actions through body, speech, and mind to develop goodness in our deeds, speech, and thoughts. The real worth of mankind will come to fruition through our deeds, speech, and thoughts. If we only talk without acting accordingly, it's not yet complete. Or if we do good deeds, but the mind is still not good, this is still not complete. The Buddha taught to develop goodness in body, speech, and mind, to develop fine deeds, fine speech, and fine thoughts. This is the treasure of mankind. The study and the practice must both be good. The Eightfold Path of the Buddha, the Path of Practice, has eight factors. These eight factors are none other than this very body, Two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, one tongue and one body. This is the path. And the mind is the one who follows the path. Therefore, both the study and the practice exist in our body, speech, and mind. Have you ever seen scriptures which teach about anything other than the body, the speech, and the mind? The scriptures only teach about this, nothing else. Defilements are born right here. If you know them... They die right here. So you should understand that practice and study both exist right here. If we study just this much, we can know everything. It's like our speech. To speak one word of truth is better than a lifetime of wrong speech. Do you understand? One who studies and doesn't practice is like a ladle in a soup pot. It's in the pot every day, but it doesn't know the flavor of the soup. If you don't practice, even if you study till the day you die, you'll never know the taste of freedom. So we'll leave it there for today's readings. Are there any thoughts, questions, comments?
1: It can be so easy to misunderstand these suttas and readings sometimes. And Ajahn Amaro was saying one time, I don't know if he said it in public or if it was just a conversation one-on-one, but that there was a monk uh many years ago at either Chithurst or Amirati that had misunderstood the Bahia of the bark cloth sutta and that uh when he heard oh in the scene there's only the scene he thought it was like S C E N E like the social scene, like in the scene there's just the scene. And the herd he thought it was the H E R D, like the the herd of buffaloes. And he always understood it that way. And uh, that uh
0: I hadn't heard that. <laughs> Oh, we're definitely referring to the uh, sense spaces here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not to parties and
1: <laughs> the scene and the social scene and the herd. <laughs> like you're part of the herd. That's funny.:
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a whole contemplation, these uh, six sense spaces in, in relation to like the uh, perceiving and conceiving and how much we, how many layers we add on to just experience. You know, but it's only when we go back to the experience and know things as they truly are, just in and of themselves, that uh, we have that you know deep insight into the, the way the world actually works and the conditioned nature of it. And then the uh, resulting kind of emotional response, for want of a better word, is, is one of wanting to, is disenchantment and dispassion. And so that's the basis of our being able to relinquish and let go, is that clear knowing, that clear seeing directly. And uh, I've been listening to Ajahn Amaro's commentary on analyo's Satipatthana, and he mentioned that uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi considers that Rohitasa Sutta uh, to have the most profound um, metaphysical statement in all of the Pali canon, and that's where, mm-hmm. you know, he, he defines the world in this fathom long body. Right. You know, and then there's you know, a number of other words throughout the suttas that the Buddha redefines, like uh uh yeah, like uh death is not not training somebody anymore, you know, death uh, no one's discipline. So I just thought that was interesting that um Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's probably the most, you know, well acquainted with the suttas considers that to be one of the uh most important statements. Yeah, yeah, let's say uh it's true. In this fathom long body, I mean, it's what, of course, our teachers in our tradition just keep harping on over and over again and returning to the contemplation of the body. Uh, but that one sutta just says it pretty clearly and succinctly and wonderfully. This is the world.
1: <laughs> the other thing about Rohitasa is his last name. Um, I can't remember what it is exactly, but it means Skywalker. Right. So he is a Skywalker. Yes. <laughs> I assume that's where Luke got it from. <laughs> for
0: those of you who like to kind of stretch your intellect uh, a bit around the notion of uh, direct experience perceiving and conceiving the um, very first sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, number one, the Mulapariyaya sutta is a, is a great one for doing some contemplation around those themes and the point being drawing it always back to the uh, the direct experience, the direct knowing. Okay, any other last minute thoughts?
1: Okay, we'll uh, continue our practice for this morning then.